Hello and welcome to episode two. Thank you so much for joining this journey of breaking the stigma of mental health and first responders. I am so excited to bring you today's guest. He has experienced the highs and lows of policing. Please enjoy as we go over the good, the bad, the weird, and the tips for breaking the stigma of mental health. If you are someone struggling with PTSD, or maybe know someone struggling with PTSD, this is the episode to listen to. I must also add a trigger warning as what we discuss surrounds mental health and trauma. Now, it's with great pleasure that I bring to you this episode with Sergeant Andrew Goldsmith. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Stigma. Um, today we have Sergeant Andrew Goldsmith and I'll get him to do his own introduction. Well, good morning um, or good afternoon as the case may be. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, I joined SAPOL or uh, well, the South Australian Police 22 years ago, back in uh, 2000, after um, uh, a 12-month period in correctional services. Um, I kind of, my my life up to that point had been very much orientated towards um, wanting to be in the military and, um, you know, uh, always wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, that didn't eventuate. And I ended up joining the Army through the Ready Reserve Scheme and, and did uh, officer entry there. Um, so always sort of been very much about... Um, a structured work environment and discipline and, and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, so I went, went and joined corrections. And after about six months of looking after prisoners, I decided that I'd rather put them there. Um, <laughs> ended up following in my old man's footsteps and, and joining joining the police. Um, you know, it's, I suppose, like everybody, when you first start out, it's you have these grandiose dreams that you're going to change the world and, and make it a better place and safer place for everybody and, and fix the problems. Um, and then you sort of, you know, as, as you go throughout your career, the uh, the experiences you have and the traumas that you're exposed to uh, change your outlook on life and and who you are as an individual. So it's uh, it's a journey. It's not for everybody. Um, I understand why a lot of police officers have very short careers because, mm -hmm. you know, um, it does take a lot out of you and it's a unique occupation that not a lot of people will actually ever really get to experience. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's um, it's funny you mentioned like short careers and and changing your outlook. Um, when I first started, my grandparents were super concerned about me, and they said, you know, do you think this career has made you jaded? And every time I be like, absolutely, yes, it has. <laughs> and it's, it's true though. You you go from you go from um looking at everybody as a good good hearted individual to expecting the worst. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's, it's sort of, I say to people, when I say to you, Scoutmaster, what do you think of? How would you, what do you think of when I say a Scoutmaster? Tell me the sort of person that's a Scoutmaster. And I'll go, it's a civic minded, um, lovely person, you know, um, out there doing the right thing for kids. You ask a police officer, when you hear the word Scoutmaster, what do you think of? Pedophile. That's the first thought we have. Because mm. we assume the worst. We don't have that ability to sort of, well, we do, but it takes a while for us to come around. But we don't have that ability to sort of stop and go, that person might be there for the right reasons. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. I think even the simple thing of like, I'll go out with friends or family uh, that aren't in the police and we'll sit down at a table and they'll just leave like their phone and keys next to them. <laughs> yeah. Someone yeah. could just walk past and take that. Exactly. And, and if, if, if you are like me, 
Um, again, for it's just that ingrained into me now, I will sit in the seat with the back to the wall so that I can scan the room and watch what's going on. And to sit in another seat makes me feel uncomfortable because um, you feel vulnerable and, mm. and it's not a feeling that you'd like to feel. So it's, it's, uh, it's very interesting. When you break it down to human behaviours and our motivations for why we do things, it's, it's very hard to switch off as a police officer. You're always wow. switched off. So. Yeah. absolutely yeah back to the wall at all times and then I find I'll also get fixated on a certain person if I think they're a bit dodgy <laughs> yes yes but you know it, it's, it's it's weird though but it's not it's not all doom and gloom like um the, the, some of the most memorable stuff that I've ever had in police like you know I get a huge sense of joy and satisfaction out of uh getting little kids into the police car and getting them to turn the lights and the sirens on and just looking at the joy on their faces because it's there's something magical about how kids just, you know, they sort of, they idolise us. Um, and, and they're just so, so excited to, to hear the sirens and, and see the car and, and play with the equipment and see, see what, we, what we carry and how we do things. And um, just the sort of, you know, making their day, I suppose, um, is really great. And that's, and that's, and that's I, like, I take that out. Like every chance I get, if I, if I go somewhere and there's a couple of kids, obviously come over and, and have a play in the car, you know, um, help break down the, the stereotype of, you know, like when parents get upset and they go, oh, the policeman will take you away. No, we won't. No, we're there yeah. for you. We actually want to help you come over and say hello, you know, because we, we, we enjoy it. You know, we, mm. we just, we're normal people who are, who are doing an, a, an abnormal job. Um, and we want to, um, we actually want to be part of the community. We want the community also to be part of us and, and have that interaction and, and not just negatively, sort of like, mm. like we tend to. So. I think it's good with kids as well. I found a lot of the times is actually breaking that barrier where it's like if you're lost in, say, like a big shopping centre and you need yep. to run to someone, run to us rather than yes. being like, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Yes. Yes, yeah, come come and find the policeman because we will help you. We will make mm. sure that you're safe, you know, and that's and that's that's what I take out of it. So it's, it's just taking the time to, to form those relationships with the community. Um, and, and that's the that's the thing I don't think we have a lot of time to be able to do that now. But um, and we sort of we're losing the losing the ability to sort of to form those sort of relationships with people and you know go into businesses and stuff. Like um, it's very it's very easy for people now to look at a police car parked out the front of a cafe and go they're bludging or they're just they're, they're slacking off they're not doing anything um that might be my five minutes between jobs where i just I'm, i need to go and get a coffee but i also have that interaction with the community um, and form those good working relationships and it, it's, it's also really quite amazing the information you can get from people when you do those things um, they tell you stuff they, they they tell you what's happening in the streets and what's going on around the place so you can actually then help the community by targeting the issues that they think are, are big deals so mm. No, they like see things that we don't yeah yes yeah yeah and they take on board things that are important for them that that we may not even think about mm. if, we, if we don't liaise with the public we won't get that information so yeah yeah i love that um would you then say is that one of your like favorite things about the police force or is there anything else that you would kind of dive into oh, look i i like there's so many so many wonderful things about the job um you know i'm Again, having that interaction with the community and children and, and things like that is fantastic. I love it. Um, but I also I love the I love the fact that every day is different. You know, I love I love the fact that I'm I'm not constantly just doing the same stuff day in day out. I'm interacting with different people, different situations. 
some good, some bad. Um, there's that sort of variety there for me, and and it's 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 very much a people orientated job. So, um, you know, that ability to form a relationship with somebody. Um, now, look, even if that person happens to be very uh, criminally challenged, let's say, um, you can still form a relationship with that person and 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 use that to help you do your job better. Um, you know, and and that's that's what I like about it is is that we have the ability to to make a positive change in the world. Um, it's not always the choice that people would choose for themselves, but sometimes, you know, um, black and white, we have to have to choose things like that. But it's also there's you know there's other areas within the, the job. Like um, I tried out for the um, the security response section, um, and that section, um, you know, we are slightly higher trained. We carry long arms. Um, we respond to the high risk jobs and things like that. Um, but it's just a different focus, um, and that's what I love about it. You know, you can. You can go from being a patrol officer to a detective to working at communications. You can work with um, domestic abuse survivors. You can work in the star group and do the high risk stuff. You can you can do rescue jobs. Um, you know, there's so many different areas you can go into. You're really only limited by your imagination, uh, and that's that's the wonderful thing about the job. You know, you can you can find your niche. You just mm. have to look for it. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's so many different areas suited to almost anyone isn't it yes yeah yeah and that that's good so it's yeah it's 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 been a remarkable journey so you know 22 years um you know i'm not done with it yet i've still got a lot more to go and i'm looking forward to it and i, I enjoy i enjoy the shift work i'm one of these weirdos who doesn't mind the different shifts and having days off during the week because it it allows me to do things when everybody else is working so, yeah 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 how do you find night shift then um, night shift is interesting. Um, I like the challenge. I like the fact that there are limited resources available to assist and you basically have to make a decision and run with it. Whereas during the day, you know, you can bounce ideas off of the detectives and, you know, speak to other people and get information and stuff. And you can still do that at night time to a, a limited extent, but it's mostly there's something needs to be done, you deal with it. Um, it's also when you get a lot of uh, criminals very active. So you can be proactive at night time, you know, go out and hunt them down and, uh, and catch them. So, um, you know, we had, a, we had a car chase uh, 12 months ago that went for two hours over, over basically three quarters of the city. Um, and I was coordinating where we were putting cordons and trying to catch the people and, and work out what was going on there. So um, it, it's exciting, very stressful, but it was, it was just, it was good to see how everybody can come together and work as a team to successfully catch these people. So, you know, it started it started at uh, Northfield and we ended up catching the person up around One Tree Hill. Oh, wow. Know, out, in middle, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, went down to Port Adelaide and down to West Lakes and through Adelaide and out north back to Elizabeth and back down this way and back up through the country, uh, through the hills. Um, so, it was, yeah, it was just that coordination of everything and, and trying to uh, to know where people were so that you could put roadblocks in place if you needed to and things like that but um yeah no it's, it's good fun that's, that's what i like about it it's, it's fun and you work with great people like my team i'm very lucky i have a great team of people um they are they're like a godsend um you know i ask them to do something they do it now occasionally yes they'll they'll have a bit of a bitch and a moan but um that's just part of people you know um and they don't always understand why i want things done a certain way but um, inevitably they'll go off and they'll do it. Um, and they're reliable, they're fun, you know, we have a good time. 
um, and we get in, we just get the job done. So mm. you know, it, it's it's nice to nice to have that sort of safe, comfortable work environment where everybody just sort of gets on and gets their thing done. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I found myself incredibly lucky uh, when I actually graduated to Hindley Street. I felt the exact same way about my team, where it was, you know, I obviously wasn't the supervisor, I was the junior one, but it um it felt like a godsend to have those people that were guiding me yeah. and super supportive. So yeah, yeah. it was amazing um and then I guess also on that note is so when I graduated you were at Hindley Street yes yes yep yeah and and it was nice to have fresh faces come through all the time um that's what I liked about Hindley Street um it's kind of funny because it's like it can be uh that shit insane but at the same time it was good fun and having all these fresh people come through everybody's so um, invigorated to be there and they you know want to work hard and they want to want to do things and it's uh, it rubs off on everybody and it's had that great sort of atmosphere and, and yeah it was good fun so yeah, mm. yeah I loved it but then you know Highly Street um, the seedy part of town where everybody gets drunk and takes drugs and causes mayhem and mischief in the world so yeah <laughs> yeah the nightclub yeah. strip yep yes yes but um, yeah which kind of you know led into the situation where I ended up with people PTSD so that that in itself was um you know I look back now and reflect on it um the worst thing that ever happened to me but at the same time the best thing that's also ever happened to me um it yep. has just completely changed my outlook on life and how I approach situations and and issues um mm. and then how I move forward from here sort of thing so um yeah so it was it was a it was an experience let's put it yep. that way and are you are you happy to dive into what happened and yeah, oh, the yeah, details? Well, um, yeah, what would you like to know? Let's go from the top. So um, it was a night shift, I believe, on on Hindley Street. Yes, so it was a it was a Saturday night um, in April back in 2017. Um, it was about two o'clock in the morning. Um, I was in the office um, clearing up a little bit of paperwork that was needed to be done, and there was a call on the radio of. Uh, a couple of men in uh, McDonald's, which is literally just down the road from the police station um, on Conley Street, um, getting up to no good and, and assaulting the staff there by throwing drinks and um, and other things at the over the counter at the staff there. So they were trying to steal food and just you know carry on. Now, I'm not a small person. Uh, you know, I'm six foot two. I weigh you know over 100 kilos. I'm quite solid and uh, I went, you know, I can deal with this because um, normally when you when you get there, they've already left because they know the cops are coming, they typically leave. So I walked downstairs, went outside, walked down to McDonald's and had a chat with the staff. Now the staff advised me that the they didn't want any action taken, they just wanted these people moved on. So um, I got the details of the, of the, the store manager and he pointed out these two young men standing out the front. Now, I looked at them and I looked at me and I went, I should be right because they were sort of like, you know, half my size, very slim build, you know, it's like a strong breeze and they'd blow over. Um, so, you know, I very cockily um, thought, oh, it should be okay. I should be able to deal with this myself. And again, I was only approaching with the intent of getting their personal particulars and mm -hmm. saying, hey, you guys need to leave, disappear. So I went out the front, approached them, and instantly one of them was just full of attitude. And the other one, 
pulled out his learner's permit and gave it to me. So I started recording mm. details. And as I was doing that, the other one was constantly trying to take the learner's permit out of my hand uh, and telling, telling his, it turns out they were brothers, um, telling his younger brother not to talk to me. I don't have any legal right to get his particulars or to talk to him at all. Um, you know, don't answer any questions and stuff like that. So, you know, it, very quickly, it sort of deteriorated to the point where I kind of went, there's no point in me trying to record down anything. So I, I grabbed my notebook and I put it away. I, uh, at the time, had a, um, like an earpiece device with a little microphone on my collar. Um, and I pressed down on the button and asked for assistance to come down and meet me there so that I can get the get deal with these guys. Because I, I formed the opinion they needed to be locked up. They were came across as being sort of inebriated or drunk um, mm -hmm. and possibly on drugs. So I was just like, I can't, I can't in good conscience just leave them to roam the city um, because they will probably cause issues somewhere else. Yeah, prevent anything further happening. Prevent, prevent other crimes from occurring. Yeah, and and the fact that they were acting, you know, um, in a disorderly manner inside the shop and assaulted the staff there, I had grounds to do it, and they wouldn't give me their details. So um, then I sort of they started to walk away, and I'm 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 not one to sort of back down from a from a challenge. So I I grabbed them by the arms, um, and then the the bigger of the two, the older one, he kicked off. Um, so I pushed him into a wall and tried to hold him there but we ended up we he grabbed me i grabbed him the other one struggling as well we fell over and i'm pinning this guy down on the ground with one hand while trying to fend off the other brother who's punching me in the side of the head and grabbing me around the neck and and pulling on my neck and things like that trying to get me off with his brother um and that you know when you're when you're in that situation and you're alone it is it is scary like um you don't know if they're armed. You don't know if they're carrying weapons or knives. You get very scared. Um, at, I became afraid that, you know, at any point this could deteriorate and I actually might end up being killed. Um, now, you, people look at that and they go, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, take your time. Um, no, 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 that's all right. Um, I talk about this a lot. It's, it's, it's funny how every now and then it just creeps up on you. But, um, you know, we're all human. So, um yeah, so it, it's 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 one of those things where fear is a is a huge thing, um, and when you're in that situation, time sort of slows down, and it felt like forever. Um, and unbeknownst to me, there was a, a member of the public standing nearby, um, and I, I don't know who the fella is. I wish I did because I would really love to to be able to thank him for his help. But he came over and he grabbed the one that was hanging off my neck and hit me in the head, and basically tried to pull him off of me. Um, unfortunately, what that did was it also pulled me over as well and it allowed the one who was being held down to get up. Um, and as that occurred, you know, I've now got the, the one you know, who had me in a headlock and was punching me in the head. And then I've got this other one who's now getting up and punching me in the head as well. Um, and I sort of I blacked out for a second. Um, I came to and I was laying on the legs of one of the guys and I had other police around me. So I had two other officers around me and they were restraining these two. And, and it was just, it was a full on fight um, for a bit, just trying to hold them down on the ground until other, other help came and, uh, and stuff like that. And even, even when we had police everywhere, these guys were just constantly struggling to free themselves and, and carry on. Um, and then, you know, it's put them in the cage car, 
I go around embarrassed because you know, like I lost a fight against two little two two little guys, and I'm just like, you know, I'm better than that. Um, <laughs> and and then get into the cells, and and when we get to the cells, you know, I'm, I'm a supervisor, so I I do what I do, which is I look after the welfare of my troops. So I go around to everybody else, and I go, "Are you okay? You know, have you been injured? Is there anything going on? Is there anything you need?" Um, and it turned out that one of the female officers that assisted um, had fallen over and knocked her head on the ground. So, you know, um, being a good supervisor, off you go to hospital, get it checked up, make sure you're okay, put in a HERS report, do all this other paperwork, make sure that it's all recorded so that if you have issues in the future, it's all, it's all covered. Um, what's the one thing we don't do though? <laughs> we don't look after ourselves. So, you know, I, didn't think anything else of it, you know, I processed them, charged them, sent them on their way, made sure everybody else was okay, neglected the one thing that was really important, which was looking after me. Um, mm -hmm. So that was, you know, again, a learning experience, hindsight. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I was driving home, I called my wife um, at the time and went, what an interesting night, this is what happened. And she said, have you been to a doctor? And, I, and my response was, no, why would I do that? And she was like, well, you've been knocked out. You've been grabbed around the neck and you might have whiplash injury. Maybe you need to go and see someone and get checked. So fortunately, I took her advice. Probably one of the few times that I, uh, I did that. So, <laughs> um, bless her cotton socks. Um, and then went off and saw the GP. So... You know, that then led into six months of physio um, mm -hmm. because of, I, I had a, I had a whiplash injury from uh, where the guy was pulling on my neck the whole time. Um, so it's, it's interesting how at the time and, and the immediate aftermath, I didn't feel anything. I felt okay. But then, you know, a couple of days later, I could, couldn't turn my head. I could, I could barely move. Um, Do you think so that's yes. initially like the adrenaline running through your system? And then I guess... Oh. As a supervisor, you're like the father figure as well. So you're like, I just want to take care of my children and put them in the reach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's, it's true though. Um, because you know, I I'm I'm the one who my priority is making sure you guys go home safe. That's my job. My job is to look after you and make sure you go home safe for your families and stuff. Um and yeah, the adrenaline dump is huge. Like um every every now and then, like I I you get so used to it. You sort of you don't you don't realise you're going through it, but every now and then you'll have an incident that happen and you stop. And the moment you stop, you, you get sort of get shakes a little bit. Now, when as you would probably be well aware, when you first started in this job, you would go somewhere and you'd be speaking to somebody and you'd notice yourself sort of shaking because you, you're just having that huge adrenaline dump because you don't know what's about to occur and you're on edge. And then as, as your career progresses, that gets less and less and less. And that, that huge up and down with the adrenaline, you know, it's not healthy for us. It's mm. not, you know, that fight or flight sort of response. So, you know, it's it's something that I, I, I'm more mindful of now is that, um, you know, we also become desensitised to violence. Um, so, you know, somebody, somebody comes into the police station to report that they've been slapped in the face on Hindley Street. And you look at them and you go, oh, there's no marks. You'll be right. Why were you on Hindley Street? Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not important to us because mm. 
you know, we see people who get stabbed and we see people who get bashed within an inch of their life. Or, you know, we had a had a gentleman who died on Highley Street because he got punched in the face and he fell back and knocked his head on the ground. Um, so you see that and you look at these things and you go, oh, it's inconsequential. But then I've come to realise that, you know what, it's actually, it's probably the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to them. And we need to acknowledge that trauma and we need to acknowledge the fact that they're feeling that way and give them the assistance they're seeking. And that's the, that's the sort of the, again, it's part of what's come out of me going through what I went through um, is that I've had that ability now to be able to look back at things and go, okay, maybe I needed to change the way I dealt with the situation um, and be more mindful of everybody's needs are different and everybody's backgrounds are different. And what I see is traumatic and what you see is traumatic, uh, completely different things. And trauma itself can still have a lasting impact. So, you know, I, I finished my six months of uh, rehabilitation with my whiplash only to start having recurring nightmares and dreams and, and waking up in the middle of the night drenched in sweat. Um, you know, my nightmares, I had this recurring nightmare where I, I was a policeman. There was something occurring to somebody I cared about or somebody I needed to save. And I couldn't get there to save them. There was always an obstacle in the way. And it could be, could be something like a river or it could be uh, um, like a roadblock or a crowd or something else. There's always something in the way to prevent me from getting there and doing what I think I needed to do. Um, and just waking up in like a sheer terror or panic about the situation. Um, and then you find yourself going through a situation where you start isolating yourself. Um, you push people away. So your loved ones and other people who you would normally rely on for support, you feel like a burden or I felt like a burden on everybody. Mm. I didn't want to burden them with my problems. I didn't want to, you know, I felt broken. I, did, I didn't know how to, how to help keep other people safe. And that's hugely important to me. You know, your safety is important to me. So how do I keep you safe? Well, I know how I take, take away the burden of me. I push you away. And if I push you away, you don't have to deal with me. And your life is going to be happier because I'm not in them. And that sort of process started. You know, I'd, I'd find myself at work and I wouldn't leave the office. I would go out of my way to avoid situations where I'd actually have to leave the office and go onto the street. Um, you know, I subsequently realised um, when I was getting help, it's because I was afraid. I was in mm. fear. I was in fear of being assaulted again. Um, I'd sit there and I'd be vetting paperwork and for no reason, I'd just burst into tears. You know, um, I'd come home and I'd, I'd you know, it's, it's, I'm a very logical, um, intelligent, articulate sort of person. So I'd, I'd be sitting on, the, sitting on the bed and I'd burst into tears and I'd be going, why am I crying? I don't understand why I'm like this. There is no reason for me to be like this right now, but I can't stop crying. I can't stop feeling that sense of panic. Um, and that was, that was hard to sort of come to terms with. And then you, you, the flip side of all of that is the moment you start recognizing the fact that you, I, I call you use the term broken. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't think you're actually broken. I just think you're, you're suffering. You're, you're going through a traumatic period and you're not coping with what's occurring to you. Um, I realized that something was wrong 
and I needed help, but then you panic because reaching out for help might mean that you get taken away from your team and taken off the road and from the job that you love. Your support network. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and that is terrifying because how are you going to cope if your support network isn't there? So you hide it and you become incredibly good at hiding it to the point where people come into the office and they don't know that you're actually struggling. They don't know that you're suffering. Yeah, uh, I had no idea. We, no, it no. was one minute you were there, one minute you weren't. We had no idea what was going on. Yeah, you know, like I said, the, the moments I was, I was losing my shit and crying, um, I'd go into the back office, close the door and do it in quiet um, and keep my, keep my voice down and stuff like that because I know that I can do that and nobody's going to know. Um, and you, you, don't, you don't let on to people that you're suffering. You don't let on to people that you're, you know, because it, again, it's, I'm a big manly man. You know, I'm a big tough man. I can, I can deal with anything pretty much. And it's that macho bullshit sort of stereotype that you have of yourself that can also be counterintuitive. It can, it can yeah. also, you know, it can hold be your you biggest back. weakness. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not going to go and seek help because I, I don't want to admit that I'm not that strong individual. The, the stupid thing is you're actually a stronger person if you can go, hey, I need help and then go and seek it. So I, I found myself getting worse and worse um, to the point where at, the, at that period of time, um, management basically said that um, you, I'd have to rotate through the city watch house, the cell complex for three mm -hmm. months. And I was looking forward to it because I was like, this will be a break. It'll get me off the road. I can recharge my batteries, get myself sorted and then come back, you know, fresh, fresh start sort of thing. Unfortunately for me, I didn't realize I went from one high pressure environment to a worse environment. So it's like a pressure cooker in there. Oh, it, it, it's crazy. So on, on the road, um, between jobs, I can go, you know what? I need a break. I need to de-stress. I can, I can go for a walk. I can get a coffee. I can go somewhere and speak to a, you know, like I, I knew a lot of the shop owners and um, people that ran the clubs and stuff like that. I could go there and have a chat and a talk, find out what's going on and just, you know, feel normal for a little bit, I suppose, for want of a better term. But when you're in the cells, I'm stuck there. I, for my whole eight hour shift, I can't leave. I am stuck inside the building. I am dealing with all the stuff that's going on. I am responsible for the safety of everybody inside that building, including the prisoners. Now, the prisoners will do stupid stuff to themselves because they want an outcome. They want to manipulate the system to get what they want. And sometimes they think hurting themselves is a way of getting that outcome. Uh, unfortunately, they don't realise it's not how it works. But, you know, being in that environment um, and not being able to have that release of the pressure and stress, I just found myself getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and then while I was working in the cells, I found out that the, um, the two men who had assaulted me had been given a $1,200 fine at court as their only penalty and recorded without conviction. And that was just like a kick in the guts. That's um, heartbreaking. Yeah. I, I, I lost all faith in the judicial system um, because, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I speak for everybody, but 
I had this faith that the judicial system was there to protect society from people who do the wrong thing by punishing them appropriately. Now, admittedly, like these these two fellas um, are from an Indigenous background, um, you know, their home life probably wasn't the best and they had other issues going on and alcohol and drugs and things like that. But I had this, I had this core belief in the judicial system that they would look after us, that their, their job is to uh, deal an appropriate penalty. Um, and again, I suppose being emotionally invested in the outcome because I was the victim, um, I looked at things and I was like, this is bullshit. And I, I, I just felt rage. Mm. I felt this rage that I've never felt before. And I, I stormed out of the complex. I went straight across the road to the police association, uh, went upstairs and said, who are the lawyers that we have working for us? I wanted to point to see them because somehow these pricks are going to pay. Um, so I went and got some legal advice and, and lodged some victims of crimes claims and things like that. Um, it was about the only thing I actually felt I had control over at that point. Um, so as time went on, again, I still wasn't reaching out for help, still wasn't seeking assistance. Um, and I had a couple of situations which sort of really drove home how I was feeling. So like um, I've worked with other people who had PTSD and watch what they went through. And I started to recognize the signs myself. Um, and so I was reaching out to some people and saying, hey, what have you been through? How have you found it? Where did you go for help? How did mm -hmm. it work? All that sort of other stuff. So trying to keep things under the table so that nobody else knew and but get myself right my, my own way. Um, now that all started to come unraveled though. I had a had a fella who was a, a bikey, he came in, you know, big muscle bound steroid fella, you know, um, standing on the other side of the counter and basically looked at me and he started laughing and he told me I was a faggot and I was a poofter and calling me all sorts of other names. And then he said, my dad was a faggot and a poofter and he ridded my dad up the butt and all this sort of other stuff. And, um, you know, if I was on the other side of the counter, he'd bash me, you know, mm. I'm nothing to him. I, he can bash anybody. He's a big tough man. And, and then he sort of kept pushing my buttons and normally I just, you know, I'm the, I'm the calmest person on the planet. I'd look at you and I'd laugh and I'd just go, hey, whatever dickhead, you know, you, nothing you says really makes any difference to me because I just don't care. Um, but this one day he kept pushing my buttons and he, he pushed me to the point where he goes, if you were here right now in front of me, I'd smash you. And I had rage. I just, mm -hmm. out of nowhere, just snap. I was just pure rage. And I went, all right, let's make this happen. And so I got up from my chair, walked around, big through the big steel doors like the cell complex has, and stood right in front of him. And the look of terror on his face, because I, I, I don't know what I look like, but I can just imagine, you know, I probably would have had bloodshot eyes and I was just angry. And he started stepping backwards. And the other, other officers that were there at the time were like, what do you want us to do with him? And I went, take this piece of shit out of my face, down the back, and sort him out in terms of, you know, processing him and things like that. Um, I then walked back to my desk, sat down, and then it just hit me. This is not me. I'm mm -hmm. not that rage-fueled person. I'm not an angry person. I'm probably the calmest, most placid, you know, person on the planet normally. So that sort of started the alarm bells ringing a little bit. 
Um, then a week later, I had a, an elderly gentleman, so in his 60s, come in for uh, for some sort of offence. Um, and he was bashing on the perspex windows and the holding cells. And I'm like, here we go. Walked around the corner, I said to him, mate, look, you need to stop that because you might hurt yourself. And if you hurt yourself, I need to put you down the back in the padded cell so you're safe, all right? You can't hurt yourself in the padded cell. So he sat down for me and I thought, there we go. I can process him, get him out, and be done with it. I walk back to my desk and as I'm sort of walking back, I hear bang, bang, bang on the perspex again. And I'm just like, I've, I've told you what's going to happen. I have to follow through. So I went there and I grabbed him by the arm and I started dragging him down to the padded cell. Anyway, um, now you know the cell complex with the big long corridor that leads down yeah. to the devil's area? Yeah. So we were walking down that. And as we're walking down, he starts kicking out at me. And I, again, snapped straight into rage put him on his ass, face first, onto the ground, and I am standing with my face like centimetres from his screaming at him and just saying, how dare you? How dare you try to assault me while I'm doing my job? I don't get paid enough to deal with your bullshit, let alone to get hurt while I'm at work. Um, and it got so bad that my cell staff, you know, who I love dearly, um, came up and said, hey, Sarge, are you okay? You go up the top, you deal with that, we'll look after him for you, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Again, I went up the top, sat down, burst into tears because it's it's not me. It's not it's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Um you know, uh, after that I had a couple of shifts and then I went on to holidays for a week, uh, for a couple of weeks, and I'm like, thank fuck. You know, again, you do that whole just need a break, reset get myself right and I can come back. Um, now, I've, I've got a good mate who's also an ex-copper. Um, he's up in Darwin with his family. And I got there hunting with him. So I organised to go up and do a hunting trip. Drove up there, um, spent some time with him and his missus. And his missus, is a, she's a, a former nurse. And I was talking about what I was going through and stuff. And she just looked at me and goes, yeah, you need help. You need to go and see someone. You need to get some assistance. You're not right. You're sick. You need to um, see a professional and get get help. You're, you're probably suffering from PTSD or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of agree with you. Um, and then on the drive home, you know, I drew, I'm driving sort of through Tennant Creek. Um, and there's this lovely section where there's like these trees either side of the road and it's lush and green. And as I'm driving down, I've got the CB radio in the car and the, you know, there's a truck coming the other way and he goes, uh, the white, the white Ford heading down the road. Um, there's a Joey that's in the middle of the road. looks like it's got broken legs. It's mum's being hit by a car or a truck. Do the right thing, put it out of its misery. So he basically wanted me to drive over the, over the Joey. Now I can't do that. But I, I, I had, had like a little 22 rifle in the back and I thought, I'll do the right thing, I'll stop and I'll euthanize the, the joey and, and be done with it. So I drive down the road, I see the joey in the middle of the road. It's not moving, it's laying on the side, sort of sitting up and it's looking around and watching the world. And I go, okay, this is what I need to do. So I pull over, do a U-turn, come back and go to get the rifle out of the back of the car so that I can euthanize the joey. Now, being the sort of the, 
the police officer that I am, I'm kind of mindful of the fact that a guy standing on the side of the road with a rifle in his hands on a busy highway looks a little bit creepy. So, you know, there were cars coming um, and I'm like, I don't want to cause alarm or panic or mayhem in the world. So I waited for these cars to go past. And then every time there was a, a, a break in the traffic, I'd get another piece of the, of the stuff ready. So I'd, like, I'd, I'd load up a magazine, put some bullets in it. Um, and then eventually got to a point where I had the rifle ready to go. There was just one last car coming and it was a, it was a lovely old couple in a four-wheel drive towing a caravan. And as I got closer, they saw me and they started waving. And as I drove past, I heard the most sickening sound that you can ever imagine. It's like a wet slap. And I realized that it was the caravan wheels hitting this Joey in the middle of the road. And I lost it because, again, counterintuitive because I was there to put the Joey out of its misery, but I felt responsible for this Joey having this painful, slow death. Um, so, you know, I ran into the middle of the road, make sure that it's, um, it is actually dead and then get back in my car. And then spent the next four hours driving back to Adelaide crying the whole way because of the fact that I felt guilty that this Joey had died after being run over by a caravan and not from me shooting it sort of thing. Mm. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a, it was a very traumatic experience. And, and it's, I kind of look at things again and go back and go, the incident wasn't just one small trauma. It was a series of traumas that I probably experienced from the entire 22 years I've been in the job, just building up on themselves. Mm. And that was the thing that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So I, I get back to Adelaide, I come into work. I have a chat with one of my other officers who's um, one of her parents was um, dying in the UK. She comes in and in, is in tears and saying, this is occurring, that's happening. And I just, I lose it. I start crying and she's looking at me. She's consoling me about what I'm going through when her family member's dying sort mm. of thing. And I'm just like, this is not right. This is not the way it should be. I should be, it should be the, the opposite. Um, and then the very next day, I'm straight into our uh, psychology section in town. I sat down with a psychologist, um, basically cried for two hours straight. And she goes, you need time off. Um, you are not fit for operational duties. You need time off and you need to go and see your GP right away. Um, I felt my world was imploding at that point because I knew it was coming. Um, and like you said, my support network, who am I going to talk to? How, who, how, am, I, you know, how am I going to deal with these things? Um, I went and saw my GP and he goes, let's start with, let's start with three months, three months off. Um, and then off I went. So yeah, it was, it was a long journey to get to that point. Mm. And that was only the start of it. Yeah. It's funny, yeah. like talking about that and in opposed to like your physical health as well, which I found yep. very interesting is that a lot of people with their physical health are so conscious of what they eat and how they treat their body. And then it comes to mental health and they're just like push it to the back of their mind. It's like, if we were to treat it the same, it may be a different story. Yes. Oh, and it's, we, again, being a man uh, and being in a macho sort of environment, we become very good at boxing things up. I, I, I call it like boxing things up. So 
you have a, a traumatic incident. Instead of dealing with it and processing it, we put it in a box, we close the lid of the box, we push it to one side and put it in our storage area. Now, that works great initially, but the problem is your storage area is only so big. And eventually you reach a point where your storage area becomes full. Now, at that point, you can't fit any more in there. And if you try to put something else in there, what normally happens when something is overly packed is you open the door to it and stick it in and everything will start tumbling out. And that's probably where I found myself at that point in time was that not only am I dealing with this trauma, but I'm dealing with the trauma of other things I dealt with, like um, back in 2010. Now, it's, it's really silly. I, I, I can drive around Adelaide and I can tell you every place I've been to where I have had to deal with a person who's been killed in a car crash because it's burnt, in, burnt into the back of my head. So I, I ended up, you know, it was um, Christmas Eve. I was driving down Main North Road looking for a dog that was running across the road. And I saw a car just just before the Manapara shopping center i saw a car which um, was on the side of the road with its hazard lights flashing and then i saw a pair of legs sticking out from the um the side of the car in the middle of the road and then you, you have that i call it the, the oh fuck moment where you just go oh fuck and i recognized that this was not good so you stop the car you put the flashy lights on of course i'm working by myself and I run up there to see this guy laying on his side, frothy red blood coming out of his mouth, um, gargling, not make, he's not responsive, he's, nothing's going on. I realise he's, he's probably been hit by a car. The people that were there were panicking. They didn't know what to do to help. Um, and so you, you go into sort of like autopilot. Um, you know, I get on the radio, I call for an ambulance. I call for other patrols to come. I ran back to my car because of the fact he was sort of like on his side and breathing i'm like he's okay for now i need to i need to make the area safe so i parked my car across three lanes of traffic to block off main north road ran back to where um the people were you know did my best to sort of administer first aid and of course you've got people standing around you and because of the fact i'm not sitting there physically hands on the on the fellow who's on the ground they're all like do something do something and i'm like he's breathing mm. he's not responsive we, ambulance are on their way and again everything slows down so what felt like felt like you know 10 15 minutes was probably in you know in retrospect only about three or four until the ambulance got there and then they worked on him and while they're working on him you know again i got a policeman mode so i'm i'm making a mud map of the area in my notebook i am measuring distances and i'm working out sort of the layout of the land so that i can do my my first on scene statement for the crash for a major crash to come down and do their investigation um now, that guy got taken off the hospital. He was in a serious condition. Um, the very next night, so Christmas Day, I'm driving around in exactly the same place. I come across a dog that had been hit by a car. Same sort of thing, laying on its side, frothy blood coming out of its mouth. And, you know, I, I, love, I love dogs. You know, at the time I had two dogs at home um, and this dog looked like one of my dogs. And I'm sitting there going, I can't, I can't let this dog die in pain. So... I go back to the car, grab some hearing protection, come back and I put the dog out of its misery. You know, it, it's, it's that 
the dog, shooting the dog actually I found more traumatic than dealing with the person mm. because that person I put into a box and I pushed it to one side. Now he later died as well. But, but the dog itself was because of the fact I've got dogs at home and I'm, I care about them. You know, I sort of, I dealt with the emotion of that one, but I didn't deal with the emotion of the other one. Yeah. And and that's the that's the thing of all these traumas, they just build up. And, and you get to the point where you don't necessarily have the tools to be able to deal with it yourself. And so I was really lucky that when I went to seek help, um, one of the one of the other fellows who I was speaking with said that there was uh, a trauma trial being run out of Flinders University, and it was being run by um, psychology students who were in their final stages of becoming uh, qualified to become clinical psychologists. Um, so, I was very lucky to get accepted into that trial, um, and they ran me through. I think they called it cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, yeah. And, when I was doing it, it didn't make much sense. Like they'd, they'd, they'd sit me down and they'd run me through a whole range of, of tests and other things, just I suppose to find out where my base level was. And then they would give me homework. And I'm like, I don't understand this. I don't understand how this is going to work. You know, like you guys are just, I thought I, 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 thought I was nuts. I reckon you guys are the nuts ones. <laughs> you reckon this is going to make a difference? Like, no. But, but it was... It was acknowledging emotions and feelings and thoughts um, and writing down, I think they call them stuck points, things that I couldn't get past. And I identified that for me, my, my sticking points were, I felt like I made people unsafe. I felt like I was worthless. I felt like I was a burden on everybody. I felt like I couldn't do my job. Um, which was a, a big shock to me because I love my job, mm. you know, and then I felt like I can't do this anymore. I need to find a different career. Um, and that I, I put people in the position of, of, uh, of not being safe um, and things like that. So I had all these, all these stuck points that I've written out. And one by one, each week that I went back there, we would start examining these things and, and grouping them together into different areas and the feelings behind it. And then as, as the, treatment progressed, I realized that it was a lot of what was occurring, I was actually reinforcing that negative thought process within myself. And it took me a really long time and a lot of hard work to get to that point where I started recognizing that what I was thinking and what I was feeling wasn't necessarily true. No evidence behind it. No, and that and that was the thing. It was you know it was, it was what's the evidence that supports you feeling this way? What's the evidence that says that you shouldn't be feeling this way? You know, and of course my logical brain goes, yeah, I can understand that. And then as I'm writing down things that are, are supporting why I should feel like I'm unsafe or I, why I should feel like I'm a burden on everybody, you know, you'd go back and you'd have your your counselling session the next week with the psychologist, and and they would look at it and they'd go, well. Is that actually true? And challenge the perception. And I'm like, mm -hmm. well, and you're trying to justify it, but you can't because it's not true. You, and and that's, that was the thing. It was that, that, that recurring negative thought process. Like, you know, I'd, I'd sit there at work and at home and I would run through a million and one scenarios of what I should have done differently. 
And I'd be going, I should have done this, or I should have done that. I should have taken a person out with me. I should have called for help sooner. I should have, you know, gotten the taser out and tasered them. I should have done this, you know, all these other sorts of things. I could have grabbed a member of the public and got them to come mm. over and help me. Hindsight. Yeah, no, but not even that though. But the one thing I didn't sort of take ownership of is that the one thing I didn't have any control over was these two idiots. And I didn't make the decision to start the fight. They did because of their behavior. So why am I blaming myself when these two idiots who basically caused the issue in the first place, I'm letting them off scot-free. I'm, I'm allowing them to not have any ownership of the situation that I was in. And in fact, if not for their behavior, there would not have been a situation and I would have been fine. So, you know, it, it took it took six months of really hard work to reach a point where I understood that the one thing I didn't have any control over in all of that situation was these two idiots. And that was the one thing that I, I couldn't change. Mm. Their reaction and their behaviour. And when I came to came to that conclusion eventually that it's on them then I started to get better. And, and, and that's, I've, I've learned from that, that, you know, I, I've, I work with people who are suffering and I can see it. I work with people who are going through their own trials and tribulations and things, but some of them don't understand or they don't quite get that you have to be responsible for you getting better. You have to own that process. You have to drive that process within yourself. You can't expect your organization to go, we will make you better. We will fix you. We will do things for you because it doesn't work. If you're not doing the effort, if you're not making the uh, the changes within yourself, you're not going to change. Mm. And it doesn't matter what anybody else does for you. It's not going to help you because you have to own that process. So I, that's the big thing that I took out of it is that, you know, I need to own that process. I need to be responsible for myself. I need to make sure that, I am continually going back and examining those boxes and emptying them out and recycling them for, for new things. Because if I don't, the story shed's going to get full again. Mm. So, you know, that, that whole process, like I, I'm now so proactive with people going out and getting help. Like, yeah. um, you know, we, we had a car crash the other, other week, two young fellas, two 17 year old boys driving along, um, possibly clipped some rocks, flipped the car onto its side and they went root first into a tree like a big gum tree. We had to get a winch, winch the car off of the tree. And when my guys got there, one of the guys was still alive. Uh, when I say alive, he was probably unconscious, but he was moaning. Um, and we all had that oh fuck moment because we stopped. The roof of the car had been pushed down to the floor, if you can imagine. So where you would sit is now squished down to, you know, only a very small gap. Um, that sort of hit me, as it would probably any normal person, you'd see that and you're just like, this is just terrific. And then, of course, you've got to cut the roof off the car to get into the actual area of the car to get them out. Um, and seeing their bodies and stuff like that, it's just, you know, you look at things and you just got such a waste of, you know, some 17 year old kids, they've got the whole life ahead of them. Yeah. You know, and then and then the trauma that it, it leads on with their family. So, 
after that event, I sat down and I spoke to my team and I went, hey guys, how are you all feeling? This is what you might experience in the coming days. This is what you might start thinking. This is what you might start feeling. If at any point you find yourself feeling down or in, in the dumps or not coping, please reach out, speak to someone, get some help, come and see me. I will take you in and we will speak to somebody. Um, don't just box this up and put it to one side. You know, um, These are the things we can do to help you. And we will make sure that you are being helped. Um, and then I then, you know, very proactive now with contacting the employee assistance section and saying, hey, we've just experienced this. I would like somebody from there to please call up my guys and have a chat. Yeah, make sure they're okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Look, and even if they turn around and say, no, nah, I'm fine. The fact is, is that they know that this is, it's okay to not be okay. You know, it's, it's actually, it's admitting you're not okay is probably the best thing you could ever do uh, mm. because it, we can give you assistance and help and we can make you um we'll make help you get into a better position um so it's yeah it's those sorts of things now I, I i make sure that i drive that because it's again you know being the father figure of the team and, and all the rest of it your physical well-being is one thing but your mental health is also another thing and i don't want you to reach 20 years in the job if you make it that far and end up with a broken relationship and you know broken kids yep. broken yourself because you haven't effectively dealt with the traumas that you've dealt with up to that point see my, the outcome for me of, of what i went through was my relationship was suffering at the time and this was kind of like a nail in the coffin for that because being very good at pushing people away you create a lot of hurt and it's very hard to come back from that hurt and move forwards so um you know it's i, I can't imagine what long what, what my wife actually went through during that period because it would have been traumatic for her as well yeah absolutely and, yeah it would be and also it's just incredibly hard because you're dealing with a guy who's depressed and crying and down on the dumps um she admitted to me that she was she was afraid of me she was scared to be in the same room as me um because she didn't know what was going to happen and she felt like at, at any point that I could just snap and we would end up with a murder-suicide type thing. Now, I look back and I go, I, I can't see that happening, but I'm not living her reality. Yeah. And that, that, that was the thing for me was that her reality is, is real for her. And I have to acknowledge that that's how she felt. So, you know, like I've, it's taken me a while to sort of accept that, you know, I, I made her feel that way. And, you know, I'm incredibly sorry that that, that ever happened. Um, because yeah. it's, it's not something that I wish, wish upon my worst enemy. Um, so, mm. so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a hell of a journey. But the, the flip side, though, is, you know, I, I've learned, I now ask two questions of every situation. Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned it to you previously, but it's, I ask, can I control this situation? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, then I ask the next question, which is, can I influence this situation in any way? Yes or no. And if the answer is no, it's not my problem. It's I accept it for what it is. I, I work with it and I control. I look at things that I can control. And you realize very quickly, there's very little in this world you actually control. All you control is you and how you respond to things. 
you know, so I, I had this focus now of letting the small stuff slide. The big stuff, if I don't control it, I don't have any influence over it, it doesn't matter. I either accept it, and if I don't want to accept it, then I, I have a choice to move on and go somewhere else and do something different. So, you know, it's, yeah. I think it's, it's massive. It's, control is a massive thing that people don't really think about because when they reflect on incidents that they've been to it's like oh it went out of hand it's like well you did your best you controlled what you could actually control um there's only so much you can do when there's you know a guy running at you with a knife or you know there's it's out of your control yeah yeah and 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 coppers we we typically we want to have control that's why we joined the job to go into high stress high pressure incidents and environments control the situation make things better realizing you don't have control can be liberating but it's also very scary mm. it means when you go into a situation you realize that there is very little we can do to prevent certain things from escalating sometimes so you just have to be smart about how you work um and, and that's where you know again my work practices have changed i say to my staff now you do one job you do that job to the best of your ability and if you think your your partners or your friends who are working might need some backup Back them up. If I think that they're okay, or I I understand the situation a bit better than you, I will tell you not to go. But until mm. then, back them up. Yep. Because nothing is worth us not going home safe. And that's that's the that's the crux for everything for me now is making sure that my people are safe so that they can go home to their families and their loved ones and you know be there for them. So yeah, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because a lot of times you go to jobs and people go, oh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six of you. Why do you need six of you? It's like the more the merrier because if this if shit yep. hits the fan right now, I'm going to need these guys. Yep, and, and people don't realise that, you know, um, again, yeah, I'm a big guy and these other boys were effectively like jockeys, say jockey size. It doesn't mean I can control them. Mm. You know, it, it might take six people basically holding them down to control them. Mm. Yes, it looks excessive, but it's not excessive because it's it's that we need to safely manage a situation. I want to make sure that I'm not getting assaulted. I want to make sure that nobody else that I'm with is going to get assaulted. I want to make sure that they're safe and they're not hurting themselves either. So we need to have those numbers there to be able to safely deal with that situation. Mm. People don't see that though, and they go, "Oh, that's excessive," you know. One big fella, and and you know, well, we've got all these big people, and you've got that one little person carrying on. Well, that's for safety. We mm. do those things for safety because if we don't, the situation would deteriorate and it could get worse. Yeah, so, I think people forget it's ultimately at the end of the day, it's a job, and we we yeah. have an outside of work life that we enjoy and we want to go back to so you know you sitting at a desk doing whatever job you're doing and you get to go home safe why don't I get to go home safe why is there a different expectation there are you putting yourself every day in a position where you could die at work potentially and for most people who are out there the answer is no you know they don't have to deal with that environment now, there are other occupations out there who get paid very well because they are in a life and death situation. You know, like you imagine working on an oil rig in the middle of nowhere. Mm. You know, the slightest little mistake could lead to everybody's death. So, you know, we, we sort of tend to compensate people for that. But, you know, being a police officer, people look at us and they go, 
oh, that's excessive. Well, again, it's, I, I use the analogy of, um, think of it like a toilet roll or a cylinder. And if you look at it two-dimensionally and you hold it up one way, it's a rectangle. And then you flip it around 90 degrees and you look at it again, it's a circle. Now, depending on where you stand, you'll either see a rectangle or a circle. And that's, that's what I try to explain to people. It's all about perception. You see it from your perception over here. I see it from a different perspective. I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. All I'm saying is my perspective is different to yours. Mm. So you might see it as being excessive. I might see it as being necessary for the welfare and protection of everybody else around us. So the public sometimes need to try to put themselves into our perspective and mm -hmm. look at things and go, why would I think that they would need those numbers? Mm. Why do I think they need those resources to be able to do that? Mm. You know, the same thing with AMBOs. Like AMBOs now don't typically go to a lot of jobs without police being present because people attack them. Mm. They're there to save you. And like I, I know uh, anecdotally of a, of a situation where uh, two ambulance officers went to a fellow who was in cardiac arrest and they were there to try to save him. Um, and the family started attacking them because they weren't using the defib machine. They locked themselves away in a, in a room and waited for police to respond because they were being assaulted and they were scared mm. for the safety. Now, these family members, what they didn't realise was is the ambos were doing the right thing and, and saving, trying to save this guy's life. But because they were feeling unsafe and locked themselves away, the guy died. Mm. So they've actually caused the death of their own relative because they just couldn't stop themselves from trying to take over and, ass and assault the ambulance staff. And I'm like, you know, we're facing that sort of situation in society now where people just don't stop and think of the consequences of their behaviour. Yes. And the fact that you've got the trained professionals there who are trying to do their job and you think you know better. It would be like me walking into a steelworks and saying to a welder who's been doing the job for 30 years, you're doing it wrong. Mm, yeah. I don't know the first thing about welding steel. I've got no idea. All right. And anything I would do would likely be substandard and be dangerous. Mm. Whereas you've got the professional there who deals with it every day. Let them do their job. Yeah. You know? I think it's big... Um putting like trying to remind people to put themselves in your shoes and I had a few times where it actually worked quite well for me when I reminded people of that and mostly with um victims of domestic violence unfortunately but yeah, you would know um probably better than I um among a lot of people is that you go to these places and and the victims are like no nothing happened nothing happened um yeah. but they've got you know marks all over them or you know they're visibly quite shaken or whatever it might be um and just for me to be like put yourself in my shoes what would you do and then more often than not they're like oh yeah I can understand yeah yeah but, but then you've also got to put yourself in their position and go, why are they not telling us this information? Yeah. And it's fear and it's the, the guy's going to get out of jail at some point and then he's going to yep. come and find me. Yeah. And so it's that survival instinct that they have. And it, it's hard because I want to put these people in, in jail. I want to put them behind bars. I want to make sure that these people are safe. Mm. But it's, it's also trying to break that cycle of violence. And that's an incredibly challenging thing to do. Oh, yeah. You know, 
yeah, it, it's yeah, it's tough. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. How do you how do you solve the world's ills? Yeah, it's a tough one as well because I think um in Queensland by the end of 2023 they're trying to legislate coercive control, which is super exciting for um you know domestic violence victims, but it's also how do you prove that, which would be very interesting. Um, yeah. Ultimately, it provides another line of protection, but it is it's going to be a hard one. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing, Le- legislation. You know, I don't I don't necessarily think we can legislate our way out of everything in the, that is causing us issues. Um, I think education is key. Mm. I think making sure that we change the the culture is mm. key. Um, and you know, as much as I go on about mental health awareness at, at work and things like that, I think it's also educating our youth that it's okay to go and speak to someone. It's okay to go mm. and get help breaking down the macho bullshit that we have, you know. Oh, he's a boy. Suck it up. You're Mm. okay. No, you know, we have feelings. Admit the fact you've got feelings. Be vulnerable to people. Um, You know, and being vulnerable isn't a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength because, Mm. you know, I can be vulnerable to somebody and if they don't like me and they push me away, well, that's fine. I'm okay with that because it just means that you're not my person sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's big starting from the source. And I guess like also on that, um, with your whole experience with PTSD and all the things that you've gone through and being a supervisor as well and having that whole team, have you got any like advice that you would give, um, say someone that has just graduated from the academy or maybe thinking about joining the police or I guess any first responder role? Um, look, it's it's a tough one. Um why why are you joining in the first place and now now this is the thing i'm not saying that people don't join the police i I love the job i think it's very rewarding it's a great career and you meet lots of wonderful people and you work with lots of wonderful people too um but it's the what you think the job is going to be like and what it actually is like uh chalk and cheese um this job is very gritty, it is very raw, it is very emotional, it's very up and down. Um, it changes you as a person. You see the darker side of life. We spend 95% of our time dealing with the 5% of the population that are criminally challenged. So you can become very jaded very quickly. And the key to maintaining a better mental health mindset and better relationships is to make sure that you don't lose the things that you do that make you you. So, you know, like I, I look at me when I joined the job, um, you know, I used to go temp in bowling with friends. I'd go out with friends on a Saturday night. I would catch up with family and I would go off and do things. I was interested in army reserve and things like that and a whole range of other things. And then as time goes on in the job, because you're doing shift work and you're, you're doing other things like and it doesn't matter if you're an ambo or somewhere else but people stop inviting you places because they make the assumption you're busy because you're constantly turning down you know invitations because you're working mm. all of a sudden it becomes too hard to continue with your with your sport because you're working and you can't make training or you can't do this or you can't make the game or whatever um, you know you, you may not catch up with family for family events you know, unless you've got a really good family that understand the, 
the shift work and the issues that that creates and then they work around that it can be very hard to catch up on birthdays and christmas and easter and, and all those sort of normal family occasions um, so it, you need to make sure that you hold on to those things because that's what grounds you in the world and gives you that outward perspective of this is how the world works not the mm. all i do is socialize with cops because it's very easy to fall into the hole. I work with these people and then on the weekends, I socialise with these people. Mm, it's, it's very easy because you're the same shifts as well. I, I definitely fell into that trap a little bit when yeah. I started. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it, it's you need to have normal friends. And I, it's funny that I call them normal friends, you know, because you know, we work in an abnormal environment. We work in a high-pressure environment, um, you know, uh, hypervigilance, as you're well aware. You know, we... We, we start start work and we go from here, we're up here and then we finish work and instead of dropping down to the normal level, we are right down underneath it mm. and we become depressed. And, you know, like the, the number of spouses that I, I, I speak with at work and I say, hey, what are they, how are they coping when they're at home? And sometimes, you know, people will say, hey, I'm really worried about this person because they're, they're grumpy all the time or they're depressed all the time. And it's like, well, they're not like that at work. At work, they're laughing and they're cheery and they're happy and they're having a great time. It's just that because of the hypervigilance uh, roller coaster, they're up one minute, they get home, they have the opportunity of switching off and they're down in the dumps. So it's, you know, it's making sure that you exercise, making sure that you do those things you need to get yourself back up to that normal level so that you can function like everybody else. So, you know, those sorts of things, being, being mindful of, of going and getting help and, and stuff like I, I'm very proactive. I, I see a psychologist every six weeks. Um, you know, I'm fortunate that because of what I've been through with the um, the PTSD, I'm entitled to free ongoing mental health care. Um, but it, it allows me to work through anything that I've dealt with at work. So the the car crash. Mm. Um, you know, we had the car crash, and then a week and a half later on night shift, we had a Another elderly gentleman who went for a walk, family reported him missing. We found him 100 metres up the road hanging from a children's playground. We then have to go and tell the family. Mm. Now, um, for anybody who's ever had to go do a notice of death to a family, there is a sound that the human being makes when they're going through immediate grief that haunts you for the rest of your days. I can't explain it to people, but it's like this guttural noise. And once you've heard it, it just cuts right through to you. Um, you know, that sort of stuff. So having that professional there that I can go to and work through those issues, work through the emptying the box and getting better tools to be able to cope with the situations I, I may face in the future so that I'm not in the same position I was when I fell over with the PTSD. So that, I'm very big in trying to push that side of things to people, you know, like even though you may not think you need it, talk to someone, mm. have a debrief. Let's, let's all get together on a, on a Sunday night after work, you know, um, have a chat, have a conversation about what we've been through for the last week or so, work through any issues, you know, mm. how, are you, how are you coping? You know, going up, with, going up to your colleagues and saying, hey, are you okay? But not just doing it and going, oh, are you okay? And then not listening, but going, are you okay? 
and then being prepared to listen to what they have to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very important. Yeah, and that, look, that's that's a thing. So, you know, like I said, love the job. You know, um, and same with anybody who wants to go into the fireys or the ambos. I think fireys are a little different because they get to sleep on night shift. <laughs> I'm not sure that's well known. Maybe it is. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to throw that out there. I'm going to have a dig. Um, but ambos, ambos especially, because you know they they're now exposed to the same sort of trauma and violence mm. that we are, if not more so. Mm. Um, well, they don't so have any uh, toolkit on them, do they? No, no, and and they're they're at the. Um, they're at the the mercy of the people that are around them for their own safety mm. you know and and that's the thing is is that you know the, these jobs are great jobs they are fantastic careers um but you need to also prioritize you and yourself um and i, I say to anybody who comes out of the academy now um family comes first mm. you 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 hold on to your family you prioritize your family they come first you make sure you look after those connections because at the end of the day, this is a job. You know, you are not a police officer. It's your job, all yeah. right? You don't have to self-identify as a cop. It's 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 what you do when you're at work. Mm. When you're at home, you're a partner, you're a father, you're a mother, you're a, you know, husband, you're, you're a, you know, whatever it is you could be in, you know, uncle, auntie, um, that is who you are. Yeah. And, and don't define yourself by the job that you do. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I was only talking about it recently with a good friend of mine. Um, and it's hard to not identify as a cop because half the time you go to events and they go, this is Jasmine, she's a cop. Yes. Yeah. So yep. you find that you also fall into that. But a lot of the times when I found that happening, I just remind people, I'm like, okay, but I also, you know, I play volleyball and I do a lot of other yep. things. So um, I think it's just that reminder because people easily do that as well around you and they don't really know that it affects you. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and again, it's that self-reflection though. Like you've reflected on it and go on, hang on, mm. hey guys, not appropriate. Um, but then you know, a police officer. It's it's one of those jobs where everybody wants to know what's happening. They want to yep. they want to understand what we go through and how we deal with things, and mm. it's exciting for them because you know they see these things on the news and in the media, and they're like, oh wow, that must be really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it can be. But the flip side is it can also be terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you don't see that. We don't tell you those sorts of things. We don't openly talk about how scared we can become when we go to certain jobs. Mm. You know, that, that when you cut the roof off of a car and there are dead people inside of there and you have to see them and deal with them, how that affects you. So, yeah. Well, because yeah. you're strong. Yeah. Well, that's it. No, but it, we are human. Yes. We are human. Yep. We, we are the same as everybody else that's out there. We are human. Mm. We just do a job that has its complexities. So. Mm. I think it's um, yeah, it's it's good to reflect on that you're human as well. Um, and I think backtracking a little bit about how good the job is, I loved the police force. I, you know, I, I made the best of friends and I had really really great experiences. Um, and I also love your boxing up analogy. I think that's really really good um, and really helpful because it is. It's a matter of you kind of shove everything in there. It's like you've got a cupboard in your kitchen. And you shove everything in there, and all of a sudden yeah. you open it, and all the Tupperware containers just come flowing out. Yes, um, yeah, I was going to say Tupperware because that's that's mm -hmm. mine. Uh, I opened that cupboard door. Holy shit, it goes everywhere. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think just to end it, I um, want to end on something a bit funny. Um, yep. So 
like one of the weirdest things you've seen and in the last podcast I did um I mentioned just as an example we had a, a situation where I had to search um a female and she didn't want to be searched she was naturally she was naked um and she's <laughs> she's lifted up both of her boobs and outfalls all this stuff um but among the stuff was um a watch that actually belonged to one of my colleagues who had lost only like two minutes prior <laughs> So that's that's one of my um, weirdest and funniest moments. But have you got any that could pop into your head? Oh, look, I, I had a guy ring up the police station to um, to report that he'd been home invaded. And he went into great detail about how these people had broken into his home to steal his drug crop. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there going, okay. Um, so just, just, to, just to clarify, so somebody's broken into your house and basically ransacked you and you were at home and you were held captive for a little bit and they stole your drugs, your cannabis plants. And he's like, yeah. And I said, and you want me to send a patrol there to, to deal with that? And he goes, yes, because they need to suffer and they need to pay. And I went, and you realise that the police, when they turn up, are going to also deal with the leftover remains of the drugs and other stuff that you have in your house. And he goes, yes, but these people need to pay it. That's more important. And I'm just, I couldn't, I, I wasn't sure if it was just a, a piss take or if somebody was pulling my leg or I'm like, who does that? Yeah. Who rings up and goes, cops need to come to my house because I was doing something illegal and I've just been ripped off. And that's, <laughs> that's wrong. You know, I'm just like, no. Yeah. yeah, so we went to the house, found the drugs, or the remnants of the drugs, pinched him, and then went and tried to find the guys who ripped him off and pinched them as well. So, oh, that's uh, a funny job. Oh, I had another one. This is even even more bizarre. So, again, not long after I'd been in the job, we had a call from a member of the public that somebody was um, had broken into their car and was. We're pulling parts of their car out, stealing bits of their car. So can you imagine, like um, back in the early two thousands, you know the old um, the old um, Cortinas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you know, like they're collectibles now and stuff like that. So it's very hard to get spare parts for them. So this guy had like a had an old Cortina, and parked right next to it was another Cortina, and we pulled up. And there was these two men there, and one of them was like a big bikey looking fella, and he gets in his in his white ute and says, they're the ones down there and pointed out these two kids down the road and said, they were the ones that would do it up to no good. And then I said, oh, can I get your details? And he was like, no, nah, piss off. And anyway, he jumps in the car and he's, he just tears across this car park over the over the uh, the dirt sort of the strip on the side, yet down Henley Beach Road at a rate of knots. And I'm just going, what the hell is going on here? So I, I called in for help to see if we can find him and deal with him. Anyway, I get the details of this fella and then these kids come over. And I get my partner to go over and speak with him. And anyway, I'm speaking to this guy and he goes, I parked my car here um, just off of Henley Beach Road and I went to the pub, um, no, uh, on Port Road, a uh, short way away. And I met this fella and he was nice enough to drop me off at my car. Anyway, we've come around the corner and as I've driven back here, I've seen this other Cortina parked next to mine and the two kids that were being spoken to by my offsider had actually broken into his car to steal spare parts from his car to fix up their car. So they confronted these two kids 
it was a bit of a scuffle and these kids had run away and the kids had actually called the police to get us to come there because of the fact that they'd been assaulted by these two other guys. While, we, while they were waiting for the police to turn up, these two other guys have decided that they were going to steal stuff from this kid's car to repair the bits of his car that they had broken. So I get there, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know, should I let them go? Should I lock them both up? What should I do? And I'm it's a just, whole cycle. Yeah, yeah, because it's they're both in the wrong at the same time. You know, I'm just like, this is just, this is ridiculous. So in the end, I've just like bugger it. I've, I've locked everybody up. <laughs> it's, it's you, you go to a job and you, and you expect one thing, and all of a sudden it's some, something completely different. And you're like, yep. this, it doesn't happen. You know, and if you were to sort of tell somebody that normally, they look at you and go, nah, that doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. No. Yeah. 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 So we locked everybody up. I'm just, it's just bizarre. It's just yeah, human beings. We we fascinating. We are fascinating things. So fascinating creatures. I would have yeah. to agree. Yeah. So. All right. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for joining me. No, um, thank you for letting me talk. Yeah. Yes. No, it was a pleasure. Um, and, you know, maybe in the future we'll get you on again and talk about some other things. All right. That'd be lovely. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jasmine. Wow. What an incredible journey. I absolutely loved speaking with Andrew and I could listen to his stories all day. Thank you for tuning into episode two and stay tuned for next episode as I continue to speak with the most incredible humans.